I wanted to start with a story, and this is kind of a serious story. Several years ago, when I was a student, I was the, one of the shift managers for Zoomies for the snowboard and skateboard shop. I was closing with a girl named Kelly one night. And I always had one of these little green Bibles in my pocket. And we had to do pocket checks at Zoomies to show that we're not stealing anything, not taking anything from the store. And when I would do that, people would see my Bible. And this girl, Kelly, I'd only worked with her one other time. And she says, so, um, are you a Christian? Because I saw you have a Bible. And I said, I am. And she said, this is no joke, this is the first thing she says, God could never love me because I've had too much sex. She starts crying right there. The front's closed, I'm counting the cash drawer and all this, and she starts bawling her eyes out. And I said, why do you think God cannot love you? And she's just bawling her eyes out. I've sinned too much. There's no way God could ever love me. And I told her, Kelly, not only does God love you, but there's nothing you could ever do to make him stop loving you. And that night, Kelly became a Christian there at Zoomies. And it ended up being a really cool story. She introduced Aaron and I to her boyfriend, like two weeks later. And he tells me, remember this, Aaron? He says, if you don't tell me how to have Christ in my life today, I will kill myself. He said, my life is so empty. And if I don't find something other than what I have now, I will kill myself. And this guy, at 20 years old, already owned a major company in Las Vegas, had a $500,000 house paid off, all of his cars paid off, I mean everything. And he was just empty, nothing satisfied. Now, I wanted to start with that story because a lot of us, even if we have a relationship with God, we've kind of, at times, thought, you know, when, when I sin, does God get mad at me? Have you ever thought that? Or like you sin and you're almost afraid to talk to God, or you're almost afraid to be around Christians, or something like this. We struggle with this. I wanted to start with a verse, and if you don't get anything else out of tonight, take this verse away. It's Jeremiah 31.3, and this is God speaking to you. He says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. When did everlasting start, guys? Did it ever start? No. Did it ever end, Evan? No. It never ends. So, you guys, Daniel, before you were born, God, knowing you would exist someday, already loved you. That's the God that we have. Now, Romans 8, 38 through 39 tells us that nothing you could do, nothing in the future, nothing in the past, guys, that includes anything you would do in the future or anything you did in the past, nor demons, nor principalities, nor height, nor depth, nor any of all these things could ever separate you from God's love. Why can't those things separate you from God's love, guys? Why could nothing you could ever do separate you from God's love? Well, here it is. This is amazing. God is love, it tells us in 1 John 4, 16. So love is God's very nature. Hebrews 13.8 tells us that God does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? So if God is love and he does not change, for him to stop loving you, he would have to stop being himself. He would have to stop being God. Okay, I want you to grasp this. Does that make sense? Okay, so for God to quit loving you, he would have to not be God anymore. And that's not going to happen. So God's love for you is completely secure. Does that make sense? God's love for you is completely secure. This is an amazing thing. And nothing you have ever done could ever take you away from his love for you. Now, he created us to have this relationship with us. And he tells us, he describes this love for us. In Psalm 139, 17 through 18, Aaron took on this at a retreat last year for any of you guys that were there. David says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. Now, how many grains of sand are on this planet? I don't think you could come up with a number big enough. God's thoughts towards you, Chris Oliver, outnumber that. He never stops thinking about you. You're always on his mind. 
And he says about you in that same chapter, in verses 2 through 4, he knows your thoughts, he knows your actions, he even knows what you're going to say before you say it. That's how well he knows you. He knows your thoughts, your actions, even what you'll say before it's on your tongue. This is insane. In Matthew 10.30 it says he's counted the number of hairs on your head, which is changing, by the way, throughout every day. I find Aaron's hairs. When you get married, guys, you'll find long hair on everything. It's, it's absolutely terrible. Yes, yes. But you're, you're losing these hairs all the time, and God constantly knows the number of hairs you have on your head every single second. He's obsessed with you, and it has nothing to do with what you've done or what you're doing. He loves you for who you are. Now, here's the problem. We are created for that relationship, but we've sinned. And all you know how sin has separated us from God, and we've talked about that a lot. I wanted to talk about the first sin and how it separated us from God and what our response to that sin was. Because what I want you guys to take away tonight is we have that love from God and the relationship He desires with us. But a lot of times when we sin, and we all sin, right, in some capacity every day, when we sin, we have a couple different decisions about what we can do. And I want to look at what happened to Adam and Eve and what they did. In Genesis 3, 6-12, it says, When the woman saw the fruit of the tree and that it was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree to eat it. Okay, so he's totally like losing it here, guys. This is not an excuse when you get married. You cannot use that verse. <laughs> or you could use that verse, but um, I'll tell you from experience, it doesn't work out so well. <laughs> so, that's where I got that scar. <laughs> So what happened here, guys? There was a cycle that was going on. And James 1, 14 through 15 describes this cycle. And it's really important for us to know. Because I think if we understand this cycle, it will really help us process what's happening in our life and how we're relating to God. And here's the cycle. First, there was desire there. Okay? Eve was looking at this fruit and she's like, man, that's really good fruit. That would be delicious. So then temptation started working on desire. In James 1.14, it says, But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is taken away and enticed. Okay? He's dragged away and enticed. How many of you guys have ever heard that temptation just jumps at you and you just got to fight it off? That's what I believed for years, guys. And that's, that's partly true. But it's not even half the story. The fight with temptation starts at desire. It starts before the temptation ever even comes. Mikkel, have you ever desired to rob a bank? No. You haven't? You've never desired to rob a bank. It's never gone through your mind. I'm like, maybe I should rob a bank today. Okay, you guys, the reason Mikkel probably hasn't been tempted with robbing a bank is because her desires have never been for wealth. She's probably never sat around thinking, I have to have wealth at any cost. If you had that desire in the first place, you might become very tempted to rob a bank. Does that make sense? See, temptation works on the desire that you already have. I'm kind of getting off track here, but I think it's important. Psalm 37.4, guys, listen to this. It says, delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord. 
He will give you the desires of your heart. So if you want to be temptation, just draw near to Jesus. Just draw closer to Him. And He will change the desires that are there already to be desires that are in line with Him. And then temptation has nothing to work with. It's stuck. It's like, wow, I can't get her to rob a bank. Why not? Well, her desires are in line with Christ. Okay, that's kind of the side note. Okay? But going back to this, this is the sin cycle. If you're taking notes, you can write this. Because you will notice this in your life, I promise. First came desire, then came temptation, and then it goes to sin. Then it goes to actually acting on that temptation and that desire. And usually it's accompanied by either me dragging somebody else with me, or somebody else dragging me with them. Because peer pressure is big, and we don't like to be alone. So a lot of times we fall into stuff and we're like, holy cow, I wish I didn't do that, but my friend wouldn't stop making me do it. Two years ago, we actually had a kid die of alcohol poisoning. Because his, his roommate, or one of the guys in his dorm, kept saying, drink the rest of this, drink the rest of this, drink the rest of this. And he literally, clinically died of alcohol poisoning. Came back to life on the way to the hospital, and two weeks later, became a Christian. Because he realized that it was quite miraculous what happened in his life. So anyway, very typically, we either drag somebody with us, or we're drugged down with somebody else. So desire, temptation, sin. Now what happens after we sin? Then any of you guys, think of your life. Okay, you sin. Next day, how do you feel about that? Anybody go, wow, I feel free and happy. <laughs> you ever felt that way? Michelle, you have? No? No? We don't feel that way, David. No? What do you feel, guys? Guilt? What else? Shame? Anything else? Don't you feel really lousy? Like really pathetic? Stupid? Is that Evan? Yeah, that's Evan. It sounds like Evan. Okay. We feel terrible. Well, you know what that is, guys? That's the Holy Spirit. You guys have God's very spirit in you. And John 16, 8, it tells us that he's convicting us of sin. So when I sin, he's like, uh-uh, Nate, <clears throat> can't do that, remember? I'm in your life now, and I get to tell you that that's not cool. Okay, so I have this conviction, this jabbing. And sometimes it's really painful, and I don't like it, right? It's not fun. So now I can respond one of two different ways. This is important, guys. This is huge. If you grasp this, you're going to go a long way. So I can respond one of two ways. The first way is that I can run from God. I can say, and this is what Adam and Eve did, right? They hide. They hide. They're, they're like, I'm out of here. I don't know where God is, but I'm going to hide from him. And we do this sometimes. I can't go to that meeting. I can't go hang out with those people because they won't accept me. And see, we're believing a lie because God loves us, no matter what, from the start. And he desires us to come to him with that. But instead, we start to believe this lie, which is part of the next thing. So we run from God. Remember what Adam was doing? Oh, it was her fault, not mine. They start to rationalize where that sin came from and why they did what they did. So they rationalize and they begin to believe a lie. And after believing a lie, there are a lot of consequences to that. We do the same thing, guys. A lot of times when we sin, we'll run from God. We'll rationalize what we did. It wasn't that bad. I'm a lot better than most people. And God will forgive me anyway. We start to rationalize. Then we start to believe those lies. It wasn't that bad. I only hurt myself, which oftentimes isn't true. Always somebody else is hurt when I sin. So I start to believe these lies. And guys, what's the result of believing those lies? The result is bondage, guys, and isolation from God and others. It goes desire, temptation, sin, conviction. And then I get to choose what I'm going to do. If I run from God, I begin to rationalize my sin. I begin to believe a lie. And that puts me in bondage and isolation where I repeat the process. Okay, now I'm a slave to that process. I feel like I can't get out of it. Have you ever been there? I have. That's what Paul was talking about in Romans 7, 
where he keeps on saying, the good I want to do, I don't do, and the bad I don't want to do. That's what I keep on doing. And I hate this cycle. He, he, at the end, he goes, who will rescue me from this body of death? Okay, that was a graphic term in those days. In fact, I've heard scholars talk about it. In the body of death, if you were a murderer, one of the punishments for murder meant that they would take a dead body, the corpse that you had killed, and strap it to you as it rotted, day after day after day after day, week after week. Imagine having this rotting corpse on your body, maggots infested. You smell it everywhere you go. You're becoming sick because that infection is spreading to you, and eventually you even die from it. Okay, that was a horrible punishment. That was the phrase, body of death. Now, Paul, he relates our sin nature to that body of death. Have you ever felt that same way? I can't get this sick, disgusting, gross thing off me. That's what Paul was talking about. That's what he was calling this sin. And see, that was that bondage and isolation. I feel like God is way out there. I feel like my Christian friends don't want to see me. In fact, we notice this, and, and I don't want to blow our cover. A lot of times, students in the past, I'm not pointing a finger at any of you guys, I promise, but a lot of times, there will be a Christian that's growing with God, growing with God, growing with God, growing with God, and they make a really dumb decision. And they'll come in the snack bars. And they'll dart to the back wall and, like, shoot behind the trash cans up to the front and, like, buy their thing and, like, sneak into this room and leave or something like that. They totally avoid all the Christians that are sitting down here. And the reason, I think, is because of this isolation. They feel unworthy. I feel like people wouldn't love me. And I think it goes even deeper. I feel like God wouldn't love me. The cycle goes, once the Holy Spirit starts to convict me of sin, if I run from God, I will rationalize believing a lie that causes bondage. And it makes me feel isolated from both God and other people. Now, here's the other side of the cycle, though. This is good. When, when I've sinned and the Holy Spirit starts to convict me and says, uh, <clears throat> Nate, that was really lame. You shouldn't have done that. I can choose the other thing. 1 John 1, 9. You guys should, if there's any verse you should memorize, this is a great verse. It says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Okay? So when I confess my sin, I'm clean before God. Clean slate. Everything is washed away. In Psalm 103, 12, it says he cast my sin as far as the east is from the west. That's infinitely far away from me. So, the Holy Spirit's convicting me. I run to God, and I confess. I say, you know what, God? You're right. You're right. I'm wrong. That's confession. I screwed up. I made a mistake. Will you please forgive me? And see, when I confess, when I run to God, and when I confess, the result is that I'm walking in light. It talks about this in 1 John 1, 5 through 7. And when I walk in the light, I'm walking in the truth. Remember from last week in John 8.32 that the truth sets us free. So whereas over here, I rationalized leaving a lie and the result is bondage and isolation, on the flip side of the coin, when I confess and believe God's word, the truth, I experience freedom, guys. Freedom. Total freedom. And the neat thing here, guys, is in 1 John 1, 5-7, it says that when I walk in the light, as he is in the light, I have fellowship both with him and other Christians. So do you see the radical difference here? Desire, temptation, sin, boom, Holy Spirit convicts me. Okay, now I can run from God and then rationalize my sin, which leads to bondage and isolation. Or I can run to God, confess my sin, believe the truth, and experience freedom and fellowship. Aren't those radically different routes that I can take? But see, the, the decision is all mine. And what's really cool, guys, is even if you take the run from God route and get to the bottom of it, I always get to do a bunny trail back to the run to God route. Because that's never off limits. It's never like God says, once you go left, you can't go right. No matter how many steps I've taken away, I can always take that step back to him where I say, I'm running to you. This is a chart I've shown some of you, so I want you guys to yell out the answers if you know 
the answers. Relationship and fellowship, what's the difference? Because in 1 John 1, when it talks about confessing my sin, it's not talking about my relationship with God. It's in the context of 5 through 7, which is talking about fellowship with God and each other. And it's in that context that he says that he forgives me. So there's a difference between fellowship and relationship. And I don't want to get wordy with you, but it's important to understand, and I think it'll help you understand the freedom that you have in Christ. Okay? Your relationship with God is your connection to him. Does that make sense? So relationship equals connection to God. You're God's child. If you trusted him, accepted his free gift of salvation, you are his child. Nobody can take that away from you. No one. Okay, that's your connection to God. You're his child. He's your father. Aaron's my wife. I'm her husband. That's our connection. That's our relationship. When we're filling out insurance claims, which we had to do a lot of this week, it'll say, what's this person's relationship to you? And I'll put spouse. She's my wife. Okay? So that's the relationship that we have. Now, if I do something really mean to Aaron, does that affect my relationship with her? Like, let's say I say, and I don't do this, but let's say I say, you're such a jerk, Aaron. <laughs> okay? Um, that wouldn't be very nice, right? Okay, am I still her husband? Yes. Is she still my wife? Yeah. Okay, it's not like I do, I, I, I mess up, and then all of a sudden she's not my wife anymore, and I'm not her husband anymore. And then I ask her forgiveness, and oh, okay, now we're husband and wife again, right? That'd be schizophrenia, which you, you go to mental institutions for. That's, it's the same in our walk with God, guys. You're his child. He is your father. When you sin, what happens? Is there any change? No change in your relationship with God. Okay, when you confess that sin, is there any change in your relationship with God? No, right? It's not like, okay, now he's my father again. Okay, now I'm not his son. Okay, now he is my father. But we play that game because we feel that isolation when we sin. So oftentimes, we start to go into this cycle. I'm saved. I'm not saved. I'm saved. Now I'm going to hell. No, now I'm good. And it just kills you. Have you ever played that cycle? I did that for a few years, and I did not like it very much. That's what happens in the relationship. When I sin, my relationship with God is not affected. Zero. You're his son. He's your father, regardless of your actions. Okay, now what about my fellowship? My fellowship is not my connection to God. My fellowship is my interaction with God. Does that make sense? It's how we relate. Okay, now going back to the example, if I told Aaron, you're a jerk right now, okay, how's our interaction going to be on the drive home tonight? <laughs> not too good, right? <laughs> what if I get home and I'm like, so, uh, you still want to... Um, Make me some dinner? <laughs> How do you think that's going to fly? <laughs> it's probably not going to happen, right? And she's going to be like, you can make your own dinner, Nate. That doesn't work here. Okay. Now, it's the same thing with God. My interaction with God, that would be like my communication with God, my closeness to God, my intimacy with God, my time spent with God, those things where I interact with Him. Okay. When I sin, just like there would be an effect in my fellowship with my wife. There's an effect in my fellowship with God, right? In my interaction with God. And we've all felt that. I sin, and oh my gosh, I feel like I would not be caught dead at church <laughs> or at Connect. Or I would not be caught dead with a what would Jesus do bracelet on. Our fellowship with God is hindered, right? It is hindered when I sin. It's broken, the fellowship. Not the relationship, but the fellowship. My interaction with God. You guys, when I confess, what does 1 John 1, 9 say? He's faithful to forgive me and to cleanse me of all unrighteousness. How much unrighteousness? All of it. 
Okay? Every bit of it. So when I confess, that fellowship with God is completely restored. Okay? So, that's why that cycle works. When I get to that level where the Holy Spirit's convicting me, and I say, okay, I'm going to respond to this, and I'm going to confess my sin. At that point, I am believing God's word. I'm believing the truth that he will forgive me and cleanse me of all unrighteousness. And at that point, I'm walking in the light, guys, and I experience freedom, and I experience fellowship both with God and with other Christians. And that's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing, guys. So the cycle is very important. So what do we do, though? Too often we pick the first route, we run, we hide, and we rationalize. We've all been there, and it's not good. But very often we can do that. The natural human response is to run and hide and rationalize. You get caught, or I didn't do it, but I do. We were watching this body language thing for our date night. That's how exciting our date nights are. Um, And they're analyzing all these politicians about body language last week. And they're doing Bill Clinton when he got caught in this affair with Monica Winsky. And he says, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. And they said, he's looking that way, he's pointing that way. So they said, any body language expert would have caught this right away. There's a disconnect. He's looking there, pointing there. He's disconnected inside. So right there you can see this guy is running. He's like, I'm running and I'm rationalizing and I'm hiding. And I'm going to do anything I can to keep the truth from getting out. This is the natural human response. When I get caught, I run and hide. Okay? We hate vulnerability. We've heard of students on this campus that have been Facebook friends with people since the first week of the year. And they've never met them in person. And they're on the same campus. Okay? Because people are afraid to actually talk to each other. That's why text messaging is so popular. Nothing's on the line. There's nothing. I don't have to risk anything. I don't have to hear their tone of voice when they're mad. That's why people break up with each other with text messages. Okay? If you've ever been on the receiving end of that, that is not fun. And that I don't know from personal experience because they didn't have text messages when I was dating. So, <laughs> I'm really starting to feel old. Not, not good. Okay? But too often, guys, we take that run, hide, and rationalize approach. There's a problem with that. Hebrews 4.13 says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So see, God sees me, and he sees everything, whether I'm running and hiding or whether I'm running to him. He knows, he sees, he sees it all. And he's not sitting up there pointing a finger like, you little jerk, I'm going to crush you, okay? Sometimes we feel like that, it's not true. We drive through the Midwest a lot. I have a lot of relatives back in Missouri. I think it's because of the truckers or something, but there's an adult bookstore every single exit, Okay? on the interstate. Have you ever driven through Missouri? It's true. Almost all of them have a big, huge billboard right above it that says, God is watching you. <laughs> okay? Um, that's the wrong motivation to do good. But, <laughs> that, but it is kind of true. Nothing, nothing is hidden from him. Right? It's all before him. It's all laid bare before his eyes. Okay? He sees everything. Okay, Matthew 9.36, though, tells us his heart. Jesus saw the crowds. He saw them, and he saw everything about it. But it says he had compassion on them, guys. He had compassion on them. That means he loved them. So Jesus looks at us when we're playing our stupid little run, hide, rationalize, isolate myself from God game. And he looks at me, and he says, I love you. I love you. Even though you're playing this little game, I still love you. The Bible talks about a dog returning to its vomit. Our dog loves our cat's litter box, okay? It's absolutely disgusting, but she'll sneak in there and we'll hear it. We'll go, 
okay? And she walks out with her tail between her legs because she got caught. I still love my dog, even though I'm absolutely disgusted with what she's doing. But I love her. So even when we're playing that stupid game, God looks at us and he says, you know what, I love you and I desire that fellowship with you. And it just takes taking the step to run to me to confess that and to restore fellowship with me. Okay? But it's natural to run. I want to talk to you about Hagar. In Genesis 16.13, it talks about her. And what happens was Abraham and Sarah wanted a child. And God had promised a child. And Abraham finally says, you know what? I'm going to do it my own way. And I'm going to try and have a child with Sarah's slave girl, Hagar. Okay? And he does. He has Ishmael. Now, after this, Hagar's like, okay, <laughs> I'm dead because they realized they made a big mistake. So I'm bolting out of here with my son Ishmael so we don't get killed, basically. So they're running and hiding. They're doing exactly what we do when we sin. We run and hide. Now, God finds her where she's at and speaks to her very clearly. And this is an interesting verse. In Genesis 16:13. it says, She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. But you know what she names God? She says, you are the God who sees me. You are the God who sees me. She realized this is the God that sees me for who I am. He knows everything about me. And he still loves me. This is, this is pretty huge. So what I want to encourage you guys with tonight is to run to him, not from him. No matter what. No matter whether you've gone through that left-hand cycle 15 times, or whether you're just at the brink. Run to him, not from him. In Matthew 9, 12, Jesus said it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And I think all of us in this room are sick to a very bad degree because we're humans and we aren't perfect. But you know what? That's the joy of the gospel as Jesus came for us. He came for us to run to him, not away from him. You don't have to be perfect to connect with God. Thank God. If you did, none of us in this room would be there. None of us in this room would be anywhere near there. So you don't need to get cleaned up to take a shower. Ever hear that? You don't need to get cleaned up to take a shower. We come to God as we are. We don't have anything to offer. God, I can't promise you I'm going to be perfect, but I can promise you I'm coming as I am. And take me and forgive me and cleanse me and make me who you want me to be. See, he sees you, right? We're talking about how God sees us in every single part of us. He sees you as the apple of his eye, it says in Psalm 17:8. You know what that meant? That was a Hebrew expression. And what it meant was that you were so intimately in love with someone, or I won't use that word because guys freaked out about that, but it meant that you were so intimately connected to someone that you would be so close that you would see your reflection in their eyeball. Get that? You're so close, you can see your reflection in their eyeball. Now God's saying, that's how it is with me and you. I see you, but I'm so close to you that I can see my own reflection in your eyes right now. That's huge. That's huge. That indicates to me the level of love that he has for me, even when I'm really screwing up bad guys. And what that does is it makes me want to run to him as my dad and say, I want to be with you. And that's what's so cool, guys, is Ephesians 3.12 says that in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. It goes back to that freedom thing again. See, I can go to God with confidence. I can go to God with freedom. And I don't do it based on me. This is great. I don't relate to God based on my performance, but I relate to God based on his performance. Jesus was perfect. That's the performance that I relate to God based on, not on my imperfection. Does that make sense, guys? So we relate to God based on his performance, not on my performance. And see, that's what grace is all about. It's a gift that we don't deserve. 
And that's what God is all about. He loves us, not because of us, but because that's his very nature. And he could never break his own nature. He could never contradict his own nature. That's why 2 Timothy 2.13 says, even when we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. He can't deny himself. He is love in the first place. He could never not love me. So it gets down to this, Revelation 3.20. And I, I debated whether I would share this verse. Because we use it a lot. How many of you guys have seen the four spiritual laws? Most of you have. Revelation 3.20 is the verse that's used in the four laws about opening your life and letting Christ step in and take control. Now here's the deal. That does apply to you before you know Christ and before you have a relationship with Christ. Because right there, he says, if anyone hears and opens the door. So that applies to you before you know Christ, but it also applies to you after you know Christ in a different way and in a different capacity. And in fact, it was written to Christians, so we know it applies to you after you come to Christ also. And what Jesus is saying is, look, I desire to have fellowship with you. That verse continues, I knock on the door, if you hear, you open, I will come in and what? And we will eat together. So what do you do with your friends when you hang out? You eat together. There was, there was more significance than, than, to that than just hanging out. In that culture, when you made a commitment to each other, you celebrated it with a meal. So not only is he saying, I want to have fellowship with you, and I want to have interaction with you, and I want to spend time with you, but on top of that, he's saying, by this meal, I'm proving to you that I'm committed to you, and I'm never letting you go, no matter what, because you've let me into your life. So I just want to say, guys, when you hit that cycle, run to God. Don't run from God, because he's waiting right there with arms open. So that's all I have. Take some time tonight when you get home, and all of us probably have some issue in our life where we need to say, you know what, God, I want you to have control. And I want to run to you in this point in my life, and I don't want to run from you anymore. So I would just say, whatever your step is, I don't know what it is, but you know. So tonight when you're alone and you don't have all these distractions and all that stuff, just take, take a minute and get with God and run to him.